You got a problem, you don't know what to do. Your dreams are strange, and you're seeing things too. The world is full of mystery. Life's more than you can see. You can ask pomegranate. You can ask pomegranate. She's a priestess. Hi. Welcome to Ask Pomegranate. This is a podcast for people who are interested in mysticism and mystery and trying to understand what it is like to experience the mystery of being a human and teasing out those edges, finding the edge of mystery and kind of like I like to think of it as holding on to the thread that you can hold on in the tapestry of mystery and just pulling that one thread and understanding it. That's as much as we can do with our human-sized brains. So one of the things that a global pandemic will do is it will make people focus, human beings. It, It causes human beings to focus intensively on death in a way that we normally don't. And so I want to talk about a mystic's eye view of death today. I want to talk about how people die, how the process, the spiritual process of dying, the experience of dying, and what it's like once you die. Uh, They didn't name me pomegranate for no reason. Pomegranate is the fruit of the underworld that uh, keeps you in, Classically, the goddess Persephone in Greek mythology goes into the underworld um, as an initiatory process, leaves her mother, goes and follows um, her heart into the underworld. She's not abducted, but she has a choice should she eat that pomegranate seed. And if she does, she will ever be changed and never go back to her maidenhood. And she eats that pomegranate seed. She becomes associated with the underworld and has knowledge of it. And not only that, but is required to spend some of her time in the underworld. And so that's a gate of death. That's also a gate of transformation. And that's a gate of initiation. And initiation is a rigorous challenge we undergo to allow ourselves to become somebody different from who we were previously and unable to return to that person that we were previously. And um, so let's talk about death today. Um, It's interesting that what is necessary for us to do as a global personal, the the global humanity, is those of us who are connected, um, well, we're all connected, but those of us who are connected psychically, which is everyone, and those of us who are connected through the internet are all very aware of death. And relatively, the amount of people at this point where I'm sitting, I don't know how many people will end up dying, um, it's not... This, the level that the last pandemic, global pandemic, brought. The last global pandemic was so big, we don't know, was it 50 million or 100 million? We don't actually know how many people died. But it's 50 million at that era, uh, the, the 1900s, I think it was 1917. That was a large portion of the earthly population. That, you know, that was a lot of people, 50 million. I think I don't know how many billions of people were on the planet then, but I think it was you know it wasn't it wasn't seven, <laughs> it was probably like two. We can look it up. So we have that ancestral memory of that plague in our bodies. We all have all other plagues in our bodies where masses of people died, people died, whole villages died, and we're partly responding to that ancestral memory right now because. I think, it, I don't know what the count is as I sit here today, but it was something like 80,000 in a population of 7 billion. It's kind of a normal amount of people dying, actually. But yet, this virus, which is a really powerful teacher, is asking us in the middle of um, everything 
to stop and consider death, which is something that Western minds have stopped doing. They've stopped considering death. They, we have become removed from rural life for the most part, so we don't see death on a regular basis. Our, the food that we get through death, animal food, is um, not associated with that. You can't, you can't actually, you have to work to understand that you're eating something that got slaughtered. And that, that also, a whole thing happened with the Protestant Reformation around um, the ancestors and dying, uh, which when they threw the baby, they threw out the bathwater. They didn't keep the relationship with, with dead people through the Protestant Re- Reformation. So actually talking to your ancestors in Western world became something that was looked down upon. So people don't have a relationship with their ancestors. And I can't remember who, is it the Hawaiian people? They call us Howleys because we, which means people without ancestors. And so we are in a position now where the whole world is having to stop and think about death in a way that it hasn't thought about death in a long time. And this does not apply to a lot of cultures, but it does apply to Western culture and it does apply to urban culture. And so here we are, we're facing death. We're all having to think about what if I catch this virus and die? What if I, one one in five people who catch the virus will be hospitalized. That's a lot of people. That's a high number. If you're hospitalized, you're going to have to think about death. But having myself pretty sure caught the virus, there was a moment where I was like, well, is this going to turn bad? And am I going to be leaving my body? We'll see. So what is death? In my studies and in my experience, so people you can read about, go to to read about, about what happens to you once you die. Dr. Raymond Moody, he really pioneered the uh, work of looking into near-death experiences. So these are people who have died and were brought back to life, and this is more common now because of modern medicine. People die and they come back to life. So he started doing a lot of research about that. So from those people, we can get different points of view on what turns out to be a pretty consistent story about what happens to you once you shake off the mortal coil. And that is kind of cool to think about. And those of you who had that have had a near-death experience know it's really a vibrational shift. So you're vibrationally shifting when you die. So the moment of death comes like this. You're in your body, and then suddenly you hear what is like a very, very loud buzzing noise. It's not disturbing. It's just like as if a honeybee went into both of your ears and started buzzing. And you're like, oh, there's that buzzing sound. I wonder what that is. I mean, you don't get that much thought out. Um, there's a very loud buzzing sound. And then the next thing you know, you're, you vibrated out of the human reality, the earthly reality. Essentially, that's what you're doing. You're vibrating out. And then you see your body. You're like, oh, there's my body. And you're in the same room. You're, you're very close to that reality that you just left. You're very close to it. If there's a mystic or a psychic in the room, they can see this happening. They can see the waft of energy. They can feel it. They can notice the light emanating and rising up. This is what we see when we're sitting at deathbeds. I've sat at many deathbeds. And they'll do a series of things to, on their part, the mystic will to aid the dying person, which I will go over in, in this in this discussion later. I'll talk to you about what you do when you're sitting in a room with someone who's dying or sitting, bringing your attention to someone who's dying. But I want to talk about being dead first. So then weirdly, and I don't know why we do this, but we tend to float up into the corner of the room. And 
this can happen in any, the following things can happen in any number of like different times. Like it's not like this and then this and then this guaranteed. Some of these things will happen to you when you're dead and um, in some kind of order, but you will have some of these things happen to you because these are the things that are reported over and over again. And one of the things is often people try to talk. They try to talk to the doctor. They try to talk to whoever's with them and they quickly find they can't communicate. The person can't communicate. Then a door will open and the door is in the form of a shimmering light and you, you feel a calling towards it. Now, what I'm talking about is people who are dying and crossing over. There is a small portion, very, very small portion of people who die and don't cross over. Get to that in a minute. So they, the light shimmers and you feel an urge to go towards it. And you, as you go towards it, you find yourself in a, col- a colorful tunnel. And you travel down that colorful tunnel, a tunnel of lights, and at the end of that tunnel is, is an energy field, which is the brightest light that you've ever seen. You couldn't see it in human form. You would be unable to perceive it. And that is the being of light, white light that you hear tell about. And that is the being of total compassion. Now, my theory is that's you. That's your front porch light. That's your uh, celestial rim chakra that sits right above your head. Now just put your arm up and, <laughs> and like right on top of your head is a white light. And some people call it a halo and it's about a foot above your head and you can just feel it there. That's where you're going when you die. <laughs> That's what I'm, that's my theory. And that, that beings, that's you, that's your soul level you, that's your, that's your one who's been recording everything you've done. And that's the one that's held you in complete compassion the whole time. Uh, Because nobody expects anything out of you other than what you're capable of. Okay. Like nobody in this other vibration, in the, the death world, realm of death, the dead, expects anything out of you other than what you're capable of. So you meet with that being and often you will have ancestors around. Now they'll appear at any time during this period process. These are people who love you, you love them, and they're there to help you. And if sometimes there are people you don't even know, uh, we like to call those people the beautiful dead and the beautiful dead are ancestors that help us cross over. And they're, they're there to guide you to just go, hey, your dad is cool. Don't get lost in that little pool of people who don't cross over. Come on, let's go. Yay. When you're dead, it's more real than anything else. As Roger Ebert said when on his deathbed, his final words were, this whole thing is a hoax. And when you're dead, you're like, oh, that is like the human life. The, the earthly realm is like not real. It's actually just a total hologram. It's like watching a really, really good three-dimensional movie. Or it's the holodeck from Star Trek. It's not real. And you, you, you feel it because you go into what is more real. Um, you have a life review in which you are held in total compassion and love. Um, I'm not going to go too far into the story because I've said this in other podcasts and you can also read it in these books that I've mentioned to you and do your own research or go to YouTube and listen to these stories. Uh, what I do want you to understand is that when what happens in death is you become aware of the fact that you are literally made out of light and vibration. You're made out of light and sound. That is what you're made out of. And that is actually what manifests your earthly body. So you manifest your earthly body through that vibration and light coming together in a certain pattern and creating this hologram of the earthly life. That's, this is why I don't get too disturbed about death because I have died. I've had a near death experience and, um, that was cool. <laughs> what wasn't cool was coming back into my body. Not cool, but also cool. Cause I like being here. And, but I want you to understand that you, you're, you're going to die. And when you do, you're going to change your vibration from this vibration and 
how you can understand this is, you know, when you go to see a really good movie and you get completely invested in it and you go through the experience of it and then the movie turns off and you're like, oh, that was just light and sound that made me have that experience. And I was so in it. It's sort of like that, except for you're the light and sound. (laughs) When you have an air death experience and you come back, you go, oh, my vibration needs to, I've got this vibrational thing that I've got that I get to do. So you learn how to manage that so that you can do your best at um, emanating what you want to emanate. Okay, so that's that's death. So dead people are fine, except for the ones that aren't. And there's a few that aren't. So in my experience as a priestess of death, and I work with a lot of uh, otherworldly beings, ancestors, people who have died come back, but I work a lot with the very few people who die and can't make can't cross over, who can't see the light or can't can't get the ancestral help or just the, for whatever reason. And I would say that that is about like 1% of the people who die. I mean, I wouldn't even go so far as to say three. It's probably 1%, but 1% is a lot when you're talking 7 billion. So there is a, there is a thing that can happen when you die where you're so in the hologram of life and so invested in it and so emotionally overwrought or so emotionally, psychologically clingy and needy or in so much pain and in so much negativity and and casting so much pain about causing so much pain or being injured, being in pain, uh, that you are unable to receive the blessing of death uh, or you're in so much fear. This is why we got to not fear death. This is I honestly what I think the pandemic is partly for. It's partly for teaching us, again, remember, don't fear death. So these 1% of people who die and can't cross over, they become, of course, ghosts. And I differentiate between ancestors. Ancestors and people have successfully crossed over, had their life reviewed, done whatever else happens over there, and then come back to visit from that perspective in which, and from that perspective, they are now helpful. An ancestor is inherently helpful. If they become an ancestor, they've become helpful because they've learned from their mistakes. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's Jacob Marley in the, the Dickens tale when he visits Scrooge. He is an ancestor. He's coming back to be helpful. He's coming back to say, look, You're causing harm. You need to change. There's things you can do differently. I believe in you. There's still time. There was always still time for you to change the way that you're living. And that ancestor is a helpful ancestor. So when the 1% dies and is unable to cross over, they don't become ancestors. They become ghosts or, as I call them, the unquiet dead. The unquiet dead are harmful. They're, they're never good. A ghost is never good. And they're, they were kind of probably harmful to themselves or others in life. And they're going to be harmful in death. The good news is that there is no end of ancestors, also known as beautiful dead, who are trying to help those folks. No end. There's always people who are dead coming and trying to help those people cross over. And there's no end to us uh, priestesses on earth who are like, our job is to ghost bust. We're supposed to go and help those ghosts cross over. Um, It's not their fault. It's really not their fault. It's just a thing that happens. It's just a little cul-de-sac. They get trapped and um, sometimes they just need more time to integrate that they're dead. And so... One of the places we can send them or suggest to them to go if they're not ready to cross over is the Roadhouse of the Dead, which is a place in between these two realms that is so similar to the earthly earthly life, they might forget that they're dead again, but they get to play out whatever they need to play out in order to leave. They have unfinished business and they are needing to play it out. 
So that's one place we can send them. So this is all to say being dead is awesome. When a person dies, they're having a fine time for the most part. And if they're not, they'll get help so that they can get there. It is not a bad place. It is a wonderful place. It's, it feels very healing and like going home. And rarely does someone who dies want to come back into their body. Um, Cause they're like, Oh yeah, that, that was actually hard <laughs> because they, you know, they remember how hard it is to be a human, to be manifest. So now we have to think about dying and people who are dying are not dead. <laughs> it's really hard to get that straight. If you're dying, you're still alive. You haven't, you have, it's like there's a before and after. You haven't left. You haven't heard the vibra the loud buzzing and popped on out of your body. So, but you're trying, to, you're trying to get out of your body and you know what, that mel that melding of the spirit with the fleshy bits, the bones and the spirit mixing together, the earth rising to meet the spirit as the spirit enters the body is hard to undo. It's a beautiful marriage. And it's hard to undo from our perspective. So it takes it takes a few things for it to happen. And it, it also takes some time. So even when the spirit has left the body, from our perspective, it takes at least 48 hours, better it be 72, for that spirit to fully have retrieved all of the bits. From the spirit's body, there's no time. So it's like, whatever. But from, from our perspective, it needs 72 hours. You need to let the body lay. We don't do that anymore in Western culture. The process of dying itself is a process of that unknitting, unknitting that spirit from the bones. And there, there's two people involved in that. And there's two people involved in your existence as a human. One of those people is the flesh. It's the earth part. And that's the bones and the blood and um, the breath and the muscles. And that's all of the, and the fire, the heat. That's all the elementals that make up this body. And then there's the, the, the vibrational light being body, soul, spirit that goes into that body. And they become a marriage. They become a relationship. And at the end of life, we undo that. And if you're not dying instantly, that's going to take some time. Even if you are dying instantly, it's helpful to have some help with that unknitting. Uh, one of the things that makes people get lost is uh, dying so fast that they have no chance to understand they were about to die. And especially if they didn't pick up on the premonitions beforehand. So that knitting together is being undone. You're shifting. You're making a shift. And one of the ways you can think about that, if you're in the presence of a dying person, uh, if you have the opportunity to sit, which more and more of us do, to sit with someone who's dying, and that, I understand that there are many people dying, people cannot be near, but it, actual physical proximity is not necessary to do this next bit. Bringing your awareness of that dying body into your mind is just as good as sitting in the room. But when we're sitting in a room with a dying person, if we can learn to connect to our own body, that's called grounding. Connecting to your own body is called grounding. That's what grounding is. Grounding is connecting to the fact that you have a physical form. We do that every morning. We come back into the physical form fully and we go, oh, yes, here I am. So whatever way you do that, now some people do imagine they're a tree with roots and branches. And some people um, just just like to feel their feet on the ground and feel their butt in the chair and to feel the air fill their lungs and that that's enough of a grounding. But notice you have a body. That's your job first. 
And notice that it's alive and notice that it is nowhere near dying. These are things you need to do if you're going to start working with dead people. We all need to learn this one. I'm alive and I'm nowhere near death in this moment. In this moment, I am perfectly safe. And then we can notice that the dying person is working to undo those bonds and that those are two different things, that the two bodies are doing different things. This is important because when you're around a dead person, you tend to walk with them to the edge. And when you walk with someone to the edge, sometimes you can just fall off that edge. I've seen the gate of death open. And when it opens, the attachment between the people is so strong and they walk so closely with them to the edge of death that they just went over. And there's kind of a kind of a magical wind that comes through that just invites anybody else who needs to die to go with them. And that's why when people start to die, people start to die. So what I suggest to you is that you don't go before your time because it's too much of work to get reborn and go through adolescence to come back to this moment. All right. I've seen it. I've seen people do this, get reborn, die. I've seen people I've known have died and gone, oh, you died. And then they got reborn and had to go through the whole thing until they got back to adolescence. And I'm like, oh, it's you're, it's you again doing the same thing that you were doing. Please stay alive this time so you can finish. So you want to just be, I am alive and I am grounded in my vital life force. And I notice this person who I love and who I'm walking with is undoing. And that undoing is that spirit leaving the body means that we have to help them, we can if we're priestessing, help them lift their spirits out of the fleshy bits. Now, this is for people who are dying. If a person is 95 and has an illness that is killing them, what is, a, what is not so great is to sit at their bedside and say, please don't die, please come back to me, Please stay with me. That's not so great because what you're doing then is the opposite of what needs to happen. You're binding them to the body. And it's already hard enough, okay? So we do this for people who are dying. We don't do this for people who are, we don't know what's going on. But you can imagine that their light body, which we see as colors and the Hindus call chakras, and I'm going to say the word chakras from now on about it, their chakras are loosening from the body. That their chakras are in their feet and that they're just loosening. They're letting go. And that the, the binds that bind, the knitting bonds that bind them to the body are allowing themselves to disintegrate. And that the body, and the bodies know how to do this. Bodies know how to die like they know how to be born. But if you are are holding an energy and you are giving them the blessing of letting go that is helpful to the spirit of that person who may feel like they need to stay for you okay so we let them go they've got chakras in their hands and their feet and then there's seven chakras through their body that can loosen and let go and sort of like as a prayer and a blessing you can just pray over each one of those chakras and ask them to let go and this, this will help the spirit leave. This is really a good thing to do if they start having an experience, the dying person is having experiences of seeing their ancestors because they'll say, oh, there's my dad or who's that? My mom said, who's that lady over there? She keeps turning and waving me forward. She was dying. She was seeing the, the beautiful dead helping her across. So we say those prayers over the chakras and we just say, you may go, you will leave me now. That is all right. I'll be okay. You'll be okay. And I'll see you again. I'll see you again. And you will, you're going to see these people again. When you die, you're going to see them again. Uh, if you want to, if you don't want to, you don't have to, by the way, if you, if someone's dying, you don't like, and they had a lot of harm in your life, you don't have to ever see them again. You can set that boundary. But if you want to, you will see them again. In fact, you will see them within a couple months. They'll come back to you, into your dreams because they've crossed over and they'll come back into your dreams. And then after that, they're like basically sitting on the couch watching Coronation Street with you all the time. So like, you know, the thing is, it's all an illusion. You just can't see them. But when you hear your mother's voice in your head, that's your mother. 
literally standing beside you, talking to you. <laughs> okay. Okay. So that's the, that's a little bit about the dying process. That's a little bit about knowing like it's uh, when people are dying, having grief is fine. helps them cross having feelings of loss is fine. You don't have to be completely sanguine. You're going to have a lot of different emotions, including shock. That's fine. But allowing them to go is an important part of the process allowing their body to separate. Now, when they die, what happens and why you go into so much grief is because they have crossed over. They're fine. Well, they're just fine. They're not even worried about you. It's like for them, it's like they're sitting right beside you, right? But you're in grief. You know why? Because they took the part of you that they knew and they took it away from the earth. And you no longer have that energy of that notion of who you are. That's that perspective on you is gone. That is what is the pain. And that is why you feel when someone, the closer they are, the worse the pain, because the more of you they held. And so when someone you love dies, they can take such a big part of you out that you feel like you're dying. And if it's a parent or a sibling, it is literally your body dying because your siblings' bodies and your parents' bodies is your body. They're the same body. So you are you physically feel like you're dying and you emotionally feel like you're dying. And that that is painful. That is a real pain. That is a grief. You lose that. If you had a favorite aunt who thought of you a certain way and when she dies, that that love and joy and is gone from the earth. It'll come back to you from the spirit realm, but that's a different thing. And now you got to change. You are going to go through such a massive change because of that loss. You are becoming a new person and becoming that new person initially is very painful. Anybody who's gone successfully through a grieving process of someone dying knows that it's very painful, but it's also very beautiful because you, that, growth, that change is a natural part of who you need to become so that you can age and you can go into that role, the next role of life and become a completely different person. And if we can accept that change, then the death doesn't have to be so painful. Now, having said that, death is immense. Death is a very transformative thing. It, it's the same gate as birth. So when you give birth to a human being, it shatters everything that came before. You are no longer that person. And this is what death does to you. But the question we need to resolve for ourselves is how can we integrate that transformation that shatters who we were and gives birth to a new person that we become when someone close to us dies? How can we make that be a thing we can integrate and use? Because what should not happen is we should not lose our life because someone we love dies. In fact, we're still alive. The very fact that we have breath in our bodies means we have a mission, means that we have things to do, that we have to recover and we have to pull ourselves together and we have to go forward. And there are tools for that. When someone you love dies, and even when someone you don't love dies, you go into a grief and that grief will never leave you. What doesn't work is being in a grief that paralyzes you for life. But the grief that you experience, you, it, it's a kind of sadness you can never accept. And that's the difference between profound sadness and grief. Grief is the thing that will never leave you. And trying to recover from that grief and make it go away won't work. You're now a different person. You're now a person with a broken heart. And it's about learning to live with that broken heart. That's part of the initiation process. And that's how we get transformed. So 
as a, from a spiritual standpoint, we have to accept that. We have to accept the reality of the immensity of it. And at the same time, how can we live with death, which is a normal part of the cycle? In a hundred years, all new people, everyone is going to be dead for the most part. How can we live with that normal part of that cycle integrated as a spiritual experience and let it inform us and enliven us, those of us who remain alive, inform us and enliven us rather than devastate us and paralyze us or worse, go into denial about it. Death is our friend. When we are born, a being is born alongside us that walks with us every moment of the day. It's a kind of spirit guide and it is our death. And when our time comes, when your time comes, you have to rely on your body. This body knows how to go back to the earth. It knows how to become a part of everything in the earth again. It knows how to disintegrate and become the water, the air, the fire, and the earth itself. It knows how to, to send the minerals back in. And we have to trust it. When we're with a dying person, we have to trust the body and the spirit know what to do. We can say our prayers and we can help. And you can rely on that body. Remembering that being dead is kind of fun. Dying is often awful, <laughs> frankly, being around dying people, but it's powerful. All of this is from my experience and other people have different experiences and those are all fine too. And mine's fine and you have your own. So always rely on your own inner wisdom. And we all need help. So some of the places that I would recommend that you could find help is by reading Andrea and Stephen Levine's books on death and dying. They have a whole bunch of stuff going with hospice care. Well, Stephen's now dead. Hi, Stephen. He's probably in the room. <laughs> One of the books I recommend is Who Dies? Question mark. I love that title. Who Dies? Who Doesn't? Who Dies, An Investigation of Conscious Living and Conscious Dying, Unattended Sorrow, and Recovering from Loss and Reviving the Heart. A beautiful book about death and dying. And then if you're interested in near-death experiences, you can look up Dr. Raymond Moody. He wrote many books, and he wrote one book called Life After Life, which is about his investigations um, in NDEs. And uh, that's where we find that everybody has kind of the same experiences all over the world. You could check out Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work on grief and um, the stages of grief. She writes, she's one of the leading people and she writes about the five stages of grief, which are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And she wrote this as a part of framework that makes up our learning to live with the one we lost. And then more people who died and came back and have stories to tell. Betty Eadie, she wrote a book called Embraced by the Light. And Daniel Brinkley, he died three different times. This guy kept dying. He's still alive today. Came back every time. Uh, he wrote a book called Saved by the Light. So these books might be of use to you. So let's all just take a breath in. And remember that we have been manifest and we're still here. And that means we still have love to give and we still have mistakes to make. And we still have ancestors sitting with us and your ancestors are with you now. That death is a doorway and whatever happens when you die happens, but there'll always be help on both sides of the veil for you. And there's always help on both sides of the veil for those who are passing now. And my prayer goes out to all the people who are crossing over. May you be blessed, all the people who are crossing over. May you be blessed, and may you be well, and as my teacher says, hail the goer. You can ask pomegranate 
You can ask Pomegranate. Hey, honey. Thanks for listening to Ask Pomegranate. I love making the show. And if you want to support me, I'm at Patreon. You can become a patron if you like. And if you do, you'll get goodies. Thank you. To leave a question for me, dial 520-222-9922. We have an email question from Evangeline. I want to talk about ancestors, particularly my paternal grandfather. He abandoned his family when my dad was 12 and died before I was born. So I know very little about him apart from a couple photos. Last year at a family reunion, I learned that my grandfather murdered a man in a bar fight, but was able to flee the state and jail because he was connected to a judge. Shortly after that, he started my dad's family. Since learning this information about my grandfather, I have been more and more aware of my own anger and rage. I am capable of thinking up gruesome retaliations for people who have hurt me. It gives me temporary relief to imagine doing brutal, violent things. Keyword is temporary. After I indulged in probably the worst fantasy I've created in my head, I experienced terrible sadness and pain in my life for a long time. I clearly experienced the rule of threes, and I'm thankful to hear the concept articulated in your podcast. Now I have a term for the phenomenon and an understanding that it is real. I do not want to hurt anyone. I want to be happy, have meaningful connections with people. I now notice my thoughts and stop myself from traveling down the mental path of violence and revenge as quickly as possible. But the inclination is still with me, which is frustrating. When I wonder where this is coming from, I keep coming back to my grandfather. I know it is my job to stop the wounds of my ancestors, in this case, rage. What would you do if you were me? I really appreciate your perspective. Thank you. Haunted by Mad Grandpa. Thanks for that question, Evangeline. It's a really good one and potent for today's show because you got it all. You got ancestors, you got ancestor wounding, you got um, the vibration you're running at in this lifetime. And this is the kind of thing that gets us stuck. This is when I encounter these unquiet dead. They're, they're usually in a chronic pattern of rage and violence or a chronic pattern of um, actually self-pity is a really big one that gets people stuck. Um, so uh, you are halfway there, if not three quarters of the way there, because you're, you identified this pattern in yourself and, and said, this isn't working, <laughs> you know, and that's all you can do in life. Uh, we have to, we have to understand that perfectionism is a tool of oppression and white supremacy, right? So you are being lovely to yourself in that you're going, this isn't working. I can change that. You're allowing yourself to live in a gray area where you don't expect perfectionism for yourself. So it sounds like your grandfather was dysregulated is the best way to say it. He, I don't know what age he was, um, but anything people do before the age of 24 is sort of like we didn't help that person, you know, because when before the age of 24, you have not developed your, your frontal lobes of your brain. And so that's the higher, higher level of decision making. We need actually parenting until we're 24. So I don't know how old he was. He might have just been taught that. So it sounds like he got it. He passed it on. There's also personality disorders that cause people to be dysregulated in that particular way that they don't, that they think is partly environmental, but also just sort of the pattern you're born with physiologically. So your grandfather might have suffered from that. And then you might have be suffering from it too. So you could go check out those things too. And just like go like, what, what are these patterns in my family that are showing up? And if you know, 
a lot of people who have a rage problems in your family that could be because they are suffering from personality, borderline personality disorder and borderline personality disorder. People tend to get in terrible chronic grief and or terrible rages and be unable to manage them. It's called being dysregulated. And then they might even go so far as to cause if you mix that with alcohol, which is one of the ways people manage it, then, you know, it can end up with your grandfather scenario. And then, of course, not being able to take responsibility for that sort of damned his life in a way. Because, you know, you do that crap and then you can't take responsibility. It's like you're always haunted by that, your own actions. So you're dealing with ancestral wounding and you know that. And what you're recognizing is that that generating that story about vengeance is generating an environment of violence in your life. So if I sit there and I allow myself to get angry at people and do not cultivate compassion towards others, I am generating a field of anger. It's actually hostility. It's not a, It's not anger. Anger is an emotion. And anger is a feeling of like, I don't like this and I need, I need to set a boundary. It's sort of like the last emotion. You go through all the other ones. And if you don't attend to them, you get to anger and you're like, that's it. I got to set a boundary. I don't like this. And it's just, that's it. And then you, that's all it is. And then it should dis- dissipate after that. If it's chronic and ongoing, it's coming from a different part of you. Not your emotional water body, but your fire body. So you have another body that's made out of fire. It, it runs through your nervous system and it's your creativity and your en- energy and your passions and your hostility. It's important to have that hostility in case you need to protect yourself from something that is not good for you. And often we misapply that. We can misapply that hostility and generate this field of hostility we then live in. And living in a field of your own hostility not only repels people who are kind and generous and lovely from you, and but so people can't get near you. They may love you and like you, but they can't get near you because the hostility is too much. This is a, a thing we do accidentally, by the way. So no blamey. Let's not blame ourselves or anybody else for it. When people are in that state, they're not there because they like it. They're there because it's it works better than anything else they found so far. But they might. But we're always still looking for better solutions. So let's not judge anybody who's like that. If you're like, oh, that's like my boyfriend. You can, you, it means, or my ex-boyfriend, that means, yeah, they need to be your ex-boyfriend because it's hard to be around a hostile person, but let's not judge them. That's the best they could do, right? So the other place that when you're in generating that field of violence and hostility around you, what you're doing from a spiritual standpoint is you're doing, you're, you're really allowing yourself to be a victim, And so I have to do this because I'm a victim of this terrible circumstance. And, and, and the, the, one of the things that the, the tarot cards teaches us is that being a victim never, never works out. You never can unvictimize yourself by being a victim. And you might in fact be subject to something that it was out of your control that you should not, should not have happened to you and was not fair. And, but If we sit in victimhood when we're adults, we cannot find our way out of victimhood through being a victim. We cannot find our way out of victimhood through being violent and and generating hostility. Being more violent just generates more victims. Now, this is for adults only. Children can be victims. Okay, children don't have the power. They can be victimized and you can certainly be victimized, but you don't have to be a victim about that. And uh, we learn this when we study Viktor Frankl. Do I bring him up every podcast? I might. Uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And I unlearned my victim story by reading him and listening to his thoughts because this man was a Jewish man going through Nazi concentration camps and he learned to not allow himself to be in victim mode while in a Nazi concentration camp. So I always say to myself, well, look, if he can do it there, I can do it sitting in my living room, right? And you can do it too. 
So you're what you're fighting against is that victim story where you have been victimized by whoever, and then therefore that gives you license to generate this field. So you just ask yourself, how is this really working out for me? And if you're fine, I know you're not, but other people are feeling like it's fine for me to be a victim and to be vengeful and to generate this field. Okay, off you go. Please do not come near me because I would prefer that we all learn to take responsibility and our own because you can't be a victim and empowered. Okay, can't can't do those things can't be in victim and be empowered and this is probably why you're generating these stories is because you're trying to be a victim or you were trained to think like a victim and then now you're trying to find your power and you're using your hostility to do that hostility is a power we use fast and quick in short measure when we absolutely have to to protect ourselves or our family And then we put it down, honey. Put that thing down because otherwise mm -mm, no one can get near you. So that's that's sort of giving you context around what you're generating. And let me just think about this for a minute because I want to give you a good answer. And we can shift out of where am I empowered? What other tools? So so when we want to use a set of tools to change our lives, violence, retaliation, and in magic, we, we want to, there's binding and then cursing. Sure, bind and curse, why not? But you've got a giant table of tools in front of you. The binding and cursing is because every single other one, the violence and the hostility are because every single other one didn't work. And you tried all the other ones, and they didn't work. So then you go to them. Before that, we got to try the other ones. And I always like to say, You want to do the minimum effective response to any given problem. So what is the minimum effective response to any given problem? We try that and then we don't, we don't want to overkill, you know, you don't want to, you want to do too much to solve a problem. We do the least thing. So if a homeopathic dose of a medicine will, will save you, you take that. But if it doesn't work, then you go to a stronger and stronger medicine. Okay. When I listen to your story, I think that your grandfather um, might not have crossed over and that you're getting haunted. So that would be my first question is, is this person haunted by this person, this man? And the first thing I would do is just like make a little altar for him and just allow him and maybe you would want to do it for your whole family and just allow your family to have to pray for peace. So what we don't pray for is what the thing we don't want. So we go, we don't say, I pray that they will be relieved from their anger, hostility and violence, because in the spirit realm, all they hear are the words anger, hostility, violence. This was taught to me by my teacher. So what we want to do is we want to go, I know what I don't want. What's the opposite of that and pray for that. So make an altar for peace in yourself and in your family. I pray for I pray for myself to be empowered and in peace and I pray for my family to be empowered and in peace. That doesn't mean you can fix your family and that's not about fixing your family. You can't fix your family. It's just a prayer. And when we pray for ourselves and then pray for another, it makes that 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 prayer the more powerful. Okay, now I'm not done talking to you about this because I want you to think about this again another way. I heard one spiritual teacher say, yes, there's demons and I agree and there's negativity and there's bad and there's evil on earth. I agree with all these things. I don't I think that there's no evil Um, and there's good and there's kindness and there's angels on earth. And I've heard and but all of that is generated by the humans on the earth. (laughs) So it's not like they come from another realm, like demons from another realm are coming to get you. That actually isn't a thing. They're a product of this realm and they dwell in this realm because we manufacture them. And so this is what I say. A prayer is a blessing. So when you pray for yourself or others, you're, you're offering, you're generating a power field around you and you're sending that blessing out to that being yourself or others. 
So if someone's really annoying you, it's better to pray for them rather than to curse them because it doesn't help them to get cursed as much as it might help them to get prayed for. Also, you let them go, <laughs> right? But you're generating a field. You're generating a little blessing, and then it floats to them. And I see them with my own two eyes. When people do this, I can see it flying off of their heads. And conversely, when you're generating that kind of anti-prayer or that cursed energy that you've been generating, that you were taught to, uh, you're, you're sending out an, uh, a curse to someone, Okay. Curse, curse, curse. I have sent out many curses in my life when I was dysregulated. So do that enough. Pray enough. Pray enough. This is what mothers who love their children do. Pray enough for that being. And those blessings will generate into a being. They'll generate into a guardian angel. They'll generate into a blessing. That being will be alive and be generated and follow that person. So here's the bad news. Every time you send an accident, like, what are you doing when you're driving your car? And you're like, oh, you stupid idiot. That's a little curse, kids. You're sending a curse. Send enough curses pointedly at one particular object over and over again. You're actually creating a being. I call it a demon. You can call it what you want. I'm Catholic. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Catholic witch. These are my religions. Um, you call it what you want. Um, but it's an energy field of negativity that grows into a being and attaches itself to, to that person and causes them problems. So that's the bad news. Here's the further bad, also good news, which is when you generate a being that lands on another person, like my beloved spouse has about a 350 million angels on him and a few demons, although I took them off, that I generated and allowed for him to have. I, I gave them to him to have. And every time I did that, every time I generated one for, for him, that actually creates a twin that I live with. So whatever amount of praying I do and being generation I do, angels that I make for my prayers – I make one for myself. It's just a natural part of the thing. And every cursed being, every demon I make for someone, uh, I also make one for myself. Okay? So you got to do a clearing. And the way that you can do a clearing is just, and this is a thing I do, um, is I just... I just call them back. I just call back all of those curses. I go, I call them back. Come on back home. Come home to mama. I ask them to, I say, thank you for my being my life, vital life force in the world. I don't need you to do that job anymore. I forgive you. I forgive myself and I allow them to go into compost. I just disintegrate them and I ask them to return to the earth. And then, and I, then I do a clearing shower bath on myself and I clear myself of all the ones that I create, doubly created for myself. And then you will feel, you will feel everything lift. It will get better. So two things, prayers for your grandfather, that he be healed, that he have safe crossing, that he be well. Prayers for yourself. Call those negative uh, energies back. Compost them clear yourself and be mindful which you're already doing be mindful of what you're generating because what you generate you know this comes back to you and that doesn't just come back to you you live in it you're actually living in that stew you both live in the stew and you come back to it okay so um and that that frees you to be empowered as opposed to being a victim. Remember, it's so tempting to be a victim, to tell you a story about how bad you have it. But every time you tell a story about how bad you have it, you're letting go of your empowerment. You're not telling you the story itself, the story of like, here I am on this planet. I'm empowered. I'm breath. If I have breath, I'm empowered. We learned this from Christopher Reeves, a man paralyzed. Um, you know, all of the disabled uh, people in the world are, are amazing and they're showing us I'm empowered. I have breath. Therefore, I can affect the world around me. 
So take that empowerment in. It doesn't mean you can't be pissed off or, you know, see social injustice. It doesn't mean that doesn't mean social injustice is okay. But it does mean that you're empowered to make changes according to what your soul's calling is. Um, Hopefully that was a helpful answer. Uh, It was a really good question. It was complex. Thanks a lot for that question. You can ask Pomegranate. 520-222-9922. We have another email question. Hi, Pomegranate. I'm such a huge fan. I would like to talk about parental suicide. What the impact of that is magically and ancestrally and how to tell if I have my dad's ghost following me around. I've had a couple of experiences that make me question if I should be preparing to deal with that kind of thing. I'm mostly wondering if the impact he's had on me since he's died is indicative of him having moved on or of him taking the form of a ghost. All my very best, Sarah Jane. Thanks, Sarah Jane. I'm a huge fan of you, too. (laughs) So that's great to know. I'm a huge fan of everybody. (laughs) I'm a natural fan, girl. So, yeah, um, this is good because it helps me clarify the questions that came up from the last question some more. So how to tell the difference between an ancestor and an unquiet dad. So ancestors do not make you cold. First, a unquiet dad ghosts they are cold you start to get weirdly cold in your house or wherever you are if you're in a place and you shouldn't be cold but you are cold and you're kind of shivering or anybody else feels that way that's a ghost ghosts are cold i don't know i can't can't, why why is that true i've never asked that question before but it is true they make you cold and an ancestor is not going to be cold an ancestor might come with a vibration of how they died and an unquiet dead will not do that either so like if you have a sense that there's somebody nearby and you get a symptom of that dying process like in your body psychics will have this so sometimes i'll just start to feel like i'm having (laughs) this is terrible that happens i'll start to feel like i'm having a heart attack and i'll go am i having a attack maybe i'm 57 now maybe i am having a heart attack i have to say does anybody here have an ancestor who died from a heart attack and then if or my brother died of um, a drug overdose that caused a heart attack so sometimes when he comes i'll feel that now i've since negotiated him to not do that but you get that sensation, and as soon as you identify that it's an ancestor coming to communicate, the sensation will immediately lift. So however your dad died, if you get a sensation of that, and you go, is this your dad, Then and it lifts, then your dad is an ancestor, and he's fine. Ancestors, fine. Ghosts, unquiet dead, not fine. Um, but ghosts don't carry the signature of their death because they can't believe they're dead, or they don't want to get invested in that death thing. Uh, so there's, that's two different ways of differentiating. Another thing an ancestor will come with that ghosts will not is they'll come with a scent of them, like something that was special about them. Like my Auntie Grace, I'll just smell her makeup area that she used to have in the house. I live with her as a, I grew up with her in my house and that makeup area will come to smell, will come to me and I'll go, Auntie Grace. And that's when she particularly wants my attention. That's an ancestor thing. Ancestors will be helpful and they'll give you support or guidance or sometimes my dad comes and just continuously lectures me every time I pick up a knife because my dad was a butcher and I'm like, dad, don't worry, I'm not going to cut my finger off. I'm doing this right. It's like it got to be a little much. So very protective. So those those are some differentiations from that. Also, ghosts will create a really thin fog. And so, and I'm convinced mostly everybody can see them. So you know how you go somewhere and you just sort of like go, why is there a little thin fog over that that person over there? 
Why? It's just like in a certain light, there's a thin fog. That's them being haunted by a ghost. And you'll just see like a thin fog hovering in the living room or something. That's a ghost. And the other final thing is when you have an ancestor come to visit you, you feel good. <laughs> you feel like, yes, somebody, something nice is happening. And when you have a ghost, you might feel uncomfortable. You might feel irritated and agitated and like a little like, ew, like, can I move away from this? And that's the real clear pattern. So if you think about your dad and you feel, what do you feel? Do you feel good? Do you feel cold? Do you feel agitated? Do you feel happy? Do you feel, do you smell something? And weirdly, it is true that the ancestor will bring the symptoms of the death. This it's a vibrational thing. They come near us. So they're vibrating back into that form they were in life. And they vibrate into the latest one, the, the most recent one. They can unlearn that once you get another signature for their, their presence. So if it's an ancestor, what you want to do is you want to sit quietly. Imagine that you have a circle around you of protection. Candles are nice. They help. And light a candle. And you want to just call your dad. And if he can show up, say, come to me if you're an ancestor. And if he, he'll come to you, you'll feel, you'll smell, you'll hear. you'll And also, if he's an ancestor and he crossed over, they will give you signals. So they will send you a butterfly or a penny or my dad flickers the lights on and off. They'll give you a signal. Only ancestors can do that. Ghosts are dysregulated. They can't. They're just messy. <laughs> Just like a kid throwing a tantrum, really. Or like a, someone who drank too much and is roaring down the street in a drunken tirade, right? So you want to ask your, your dad to come in. And then you want to say, okay, now that you're here, can you give me a signal if I, you don't already have one? So if they'll flash something in your mind or you'll feel it in your body. You'll feel a buzzing down your arms or a tingling in your ears. You'll smell something or you'll hear a song in your head or you'll taste something. That's the indication that they're there. Smells are very potent for me, so I often get smells, but my little niece um, sends me a white butterfly. Uh, actually, they're probably cabbage moths. She sends me a little cabbage moth. So that's one way to identify them. And if he's a ghost, and you, so you, the answer is I see fogs, I feel cold, he causes me trouble. Like, you know, it's, ghosts are always causing minor trouble. So in conclusion, we can all, if it's our work, help the people who are dying or trying to cross over just by having a little altar or saying a little prayer. If it's your job, when there is a time of a pandemic, for instance, or a lot of people seem to be crossing over and you're really noticing that, you can just say a little blessing. You can just say, may your crossing be clear. May the way be open. And for you to remind yourself that you're going to die, that you will come to the end and you will unknit from this earthly veil. And this body that you're in right now will carry the stories into the earth of your life. It will carry the tale of everything you did and it will remain here. And that's an ancestor we call those who remain. That story, your life story, everything you th did, thought, or was goes into the earth and goes into the story of the earth. And your spirit will leave and it will take the stories with them and bring it over to the other side. And that's what we're doing. We're coming and we're going and we're telling stories, stories of life and death. Many blessings to you. You can ask pomegranate. You can ask pomegranate. She